and the exciting part about it is that I think we're on the cusp of, of great things for SSR, great growth potential, opportunities for our, for our people. A lot of, I see a lot of young faces around the office, which is, you know, exciting to see because they, got, they have their whole career in front of them. And we're, we're placing in front of them this, this company that is a vehicle for them to do anything they want to do. Welcome to SSR On Air. I'm Mike Rogers, your host for this monthly podcast brought to you by Smith Seckman Reed. Tune in as I interview leaders, colleagues, and clients about what's going on internally at SSR and in the larger engineering community. Before we jump into all of the great interviews we have planned, we want to spend this first episode introducing our host to you, our listeners. Mike Rogers is our current Chief Growth Officer. He's been with SSR since 2000 and has served in a variety of leadership roles. A mechanical engineer by trade, Mike has nearly four decades of experience in engineering consulting. Previous to his current role, Mike was market sector leader for sports and entertainment at SSR. He's been involved in many high-profile venues, including the new Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas and Bridgestone Arena, located here in Nashville. Welcome, Mike. Hi. What did you do in the military? Uh, different things. So my first job was a design job. I was literally doing uh, computer facility designs for strategic air command. So with the missile bases and underground command posts that you hear all about, we did that design work. And then I left there and went to a construction battalion in Korea. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I got recruited to Pacific Air Force headquarters in Hawaii. And there I managed contracts and construction and, and maintenance contracts. So you've always been, you've always been in the construction design world. Then, even when you joined the military, uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the brief stint at at uh, at PACAF headquarters, I was managing contracts, still in the construction world, but I just wasn't doing design work. And and so, really, one of the reasons why I got out of the Air Force was I really wanted to do design work more. And so, I left the Air Force while I was in Hawaii, went to work for Metcalf and Eddy, who was a, a large international firm for a couple of years and did design work in, in the islands. For the most. Did you pick like a specific discipline once you got out of the military to focus on with your design work or did you still kind of keep it broad? Well, as a mechanical engineer, when I came out, everybody is, is designated in the military generally, in the Air Force anyways, as a civil engineer. So they could have put me in any kind of bucket. I happened to fall into a design group doing the computer facilities and as a mechanical engineer, I focused on HVAC for the facilities so gotcha were yeah. those like some advanced like cooling systems and stuff like that they were and, and you know of course they're ant antiquated by today's standards but back then it was you know water-cooled systems um you know uh great big disc drives that you don't see anymore i mean all that kind of crazy stuff um but the the parameters of the room and the design of the room is still very similar the the big project I worked on back then was the under, underground command post for Strategic Air Command. So if you look at off at Air Force Base and look at Strategic Air Command, you see this big beautiful building. Well, underneath the front yard of that is a three-story, enormous building, completely wrapped in copper that that does all the commanding and stuff for the missiles. So wow, yeah. Um, uh, okay, so you were in you were in Hawaii. Did you stay in Hawaii when you left the military and joined that company? Yeah, for a couple of years. My wife, my wife was still. She was Air Force as well. She was a uh, uh, 
targeting officer. So that was during the first Desert Storm War, and she was actually doing all the targeting for the Desert Storm. And, um, and so I got out and stayed there. Uh, we were married at that point, uh, stayed there for two more years, and then she decided to get out, and that's when we moved back to Nashville, or moved back to my home, which she grew up in Southern California, but I, I grew up here. So you're born and raised Nashville? For the most part. I spent about six or seven years in Virginia. Um, and then came back to Nashville. So a little bit Knoxville, Virginia, Nashville, and then went to school in, in Knoxville at UT. Okay, gotcha, yeah, cool. Yeah. And then at, was it after um, you went to school, then you joined the military, or was that? Right, I, I, was, I was ROTC. So okay. um, during college, I was in ROTC, um, engineering scholarship, you know, helping me pay for school. I was a broke student, so it was, it was good. Got me through the last couple of years of school. <clears throat> yeah. um, so... Um, Early on, like before you went to college and high school, maybe even mm-hmm. before that, did you know you wanted to do engineering? Was there some moment where you were like, like divine intervention or no, no, just de- fell into it? Definitely not. Um, I, was, I was very good at math. So it was, you know, they kind of push you in a, in a direction. But I actually started in art school. So as an artist, <clears throat> believe it or not, I, both sides of my brain work. So um, I, uh, I actually was a artist for four or five years before I went to, to college making decent money. And uh, what changed my mind was I saw artists that were much better than I, I and graduating with no jobs, no prospects, and no money. And so I switched to engineering. So that's kind of how it went down. I would believe it, though, because I've seen your pumpkin carvings. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A few of those. That's the, is that sort of the last? Do you, do you still paint and do things? Or I'm I, sorry, I don't know I what do. kind of artist you were specifically. Yeah, well, I actually, it started um, kind of as a fluke. I used to, um, like a lot of kids, you, you copy your favorite things. I was a Mad Magazine kid when I was a kid. So I was da- drawing all the stuff out of Mad Magazine. And a friend of mine uh, whose mother ran... Uh, Opry, I don't know if you guys remember Opryland, but they had the theme park and they had caricature artists out there. And she said, you need to go be one of our caricature artists. And so uh, two weeks later, I'm sitting at Opryland drawing people that I've never done before <laughs> doing caricatures. And um, I did that for, for four years and then did it through college some to make money on the side. So I was actually kind of a cartoonist, caricature artist, had a cartoon strip that ran for a little while when I was in in the Air Force. And, uh, was so, it about the Air Force? It was. It was called Wing Nuts. It was Air Force <laughs> cartoon called Wing Nuts. <clears throat> and, uh, can, can we get yeah. a copy of that, guys, and put it in the linear notes? Do you have some of it anymore, Mike? Oh, so oh we yeah. Can, we can yeah. read it? Right. I, yeah, actually, one year I won the Jefferson Award, which was a... a um, which, yeah, I mean, <laughs> believe it or not, it's true. Uh, which is a, uh, uh, I guess, I'm not sure what... It's something to do with news and articles and things, whatever. Anyway, so my, my cartoon strip got, I think it was second place in the Jefferson Award. So Wow. Were you like making fun of like superior officers and stuff? And I, get in trouble I for was, it, and I did get in trouble. <laughs> I, I, I actually had to end the cartoon strip because some of the NCOs got mad at me for a couple of jokes. So, but. Let's make sure those are the ones we pull, guys. Those I, must I, be the good ones. I, yeah, I do still have a lot of those old strips. Some of them are single panel strips. Some of them are multi panel strips. It's just it was a it was a phase when uh, I was it was right out of right out of college. So at one point, I think I sat down and counted how many characters I did, and it was over ten thousand. So wow. <laughs> done a lot of them over the years. Wow, that is a lot. And that's a long time ago because I really don't do them anymore. That was all maybe ten thousand of them through college. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. Wow. Right. How do you end up at SSR? 
Well, I actually took a job originally with Gresham Smith and Partners, uh, which is an AE firm here in town. Um, good sized firm, good partners with us. We still work with them. And I, and I stayed with them for almost seven years uh, and then was recruited over to SSR. Uh, John Gromos at the time ran the sports team, uh, which was kind of a burgeoning group uh, towards the sports team and starting to, I guess, dip our toe into commissioning a little bit. And uh, so I came over originally as a project manager for the, for the sports group. Uh, about when was that? That was uh, 2000. That was 2000. 2000. So you've been mm-hmm. with SSR for over 20 years. I have. Wow. I have, yeah. Wow. So seven years at Gresham Smith. And at Gresham, I, I worked on um, commercial work. I worked on industrial work. Um, I, the only thing, it's, it's kind of interesting, the only thing that I have not really spent much time on is healthcare, which is most of what SSR does, and it's most of what Gresham Smith did at the time, too. I'd say I've done uh, around the perimeters of healthcare. You know, medical office buildings, clinics, you know, uh, rehab facilities, things like that. But I haven't, I've never designed or, or dove into a, a OR or, you know, a acute care hospital myself. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. when you came over here to SSR, they immediately stuck you in sports and entertainment. That's what you started working on. It is. It even is. though you knew nothing about it. For the most part, no. no. <laughs> For the most part, you know, though. Now, we did do correctional work at the time, and I had some correctional experience. and. I actually had quite a bit of aviation experience, and we really we did we tried some of that and never got anywhere with it. So, so yeah, I just really came in as a project manager with very little experience in the sports world, for sure. Were you excited about the opportunity to work in that? Absolutely. You know, it it, it was it was the topic of sports, but the the thing that really drove me here were the people mm-hmm. from from day one. Uh, Rob Barrick at the time, you know, CEO. Uh, John Gromos was a leader back then. He's at Turner now, still a great guy. And um, everybody that was around that group, it just, it just felt better. It felt like it was more of a team, everybody pulling in the same direction. Um, so it, it, was, it was the work, but it was the people. Hmm. And it must have stayed that way because you've, you've been here for a while now. I've been here for a while, 20, 20, right at 20 years, a little over 20 years. So yeah, it, it did. I mean, I, I spent two years managing projects. And then uh, John stepped over to run the commissioning group, and I took over the sports group at that point. So, um, and I ran that group for, I guess, 14 years, something like that. You know, SSR has been through a lot of changes over the last 20 years. Do you still Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. that same connection that you did to your small team that you do to the firm now? Does it? You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, it's it's different. I think it is different, Um, but in in a good way. I think that you know we were very fractured. Back in the day, we had 30-some-odd teams, all of them with their own little uh, idea of how to run things and, and their own clients and really you know, independent uh, business you know, units for the most part. And so there was a lot of disconnect there. And, and there was a lot of you're standing on your own. If you're not able to catch enough fish to keep your people busy, then, then you can't keep them busy. And, and there was very little sharing. Um, we did things in many different ways, so it made it really hard to share across the offices and even across the teams in some ways. So um, getting out of that mode was a huge move for SSR, and that's been seven or eight years ago now that we yeah. pulled out of that. And, and uh, now it, it, it's, you still have the connection with the people, but it's different, and it's a much broader connection. And I think that there, there, there are connections now that would have never occurred back then. 
across the entire company. I mean, most most of the people sitting in Nashville have got connections with people in Dallas and Houston and Sarasota, work with them every day, where 15 years ago, they wouldn't even have known who they were. Mm. So it, it's, it's a vast difference, a huge, uh, a huge difference for everybody. And I think it, it gives them a sense of a bigger community and a bigger resource pool. You know, if they've got a question, then they know that, you know, just because they're in Sarasota, they can call Rick Wood in Nashville and get an answer because they know who he is now Mm -hmm. and what he stands for. So I think those kinds of of changes were very, very powerful for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So recently you you were promoted to the role of chief growth officer at SSR, which is a position we've never had before. True. Can you can you tell us about the uh, kind of the run up to that and what the transition has been like? You know, like maybe the year or two leading up to the, the mm-hmm. transition? Yeah, so the, the CGO role is an interesting role in our industry. There, there are few companies that have it, um, and a lot of them don't call it that. They, they, they have different names for it, but it's the same activity. I know that since I've moved into the role, I've had some of our competitors that are in that role call me and say, hey, I'm kind of doing the same thing, and, but their title's not the same. <laughs> you know, um, what are some of the other titles? Um, it, it, can be, uh, it can be a chief administrative officer. It can be a chief marketing officer. It can be, um, sometimes it's just a, a different title altogether, some type of regional thing, but it's the same activities that they're trying to do. So it's, it's been interesting. And what are those activities, real quick? Just, well, just so our uh, listeners can Yeah, know. yeah. So I, I think it's about looking, looking at two things. One, looking internally. What are, what are we doing internally that promotes growth? and sustains our growth and then what are we looking to do externally to help that and then looking at the long range things what what's out there five years from now where's the market going everybody talks about how technology is changing so rapidly and that's true and some of our business is technology but the industry as a whole is changing rapidly too if you look at the way we produce drawings and and our products today and our consulting work from five years ago, it's very different. And, and I think five years from now, it's going to be different again. So it's about trying to, to prognosticate out a little bit and say, where, where are we going to be? Where do we need to be? Where do we need to align things? What business, do, what business areas do we need to be in? And which ones do we not need to be in? Um, so it's, it's a lot of those things. It's a mindset of growth, a mindset of not, not just growth, because growth is a, it's kind of a strange name, right? I mean, is it, is it growth of the company? Is it growth of our people? Is it growth for our clients? Yes. It's all those things. It, it, you know, I think it's, we, we grow our business in order to give opportunities to grow our people. And, and by helping our clients grow, then we help ourselves as well. So it's, it's all those things rolled up into one in my, in my mind. That I think that at the end of the day, we're here to, to deliver a product to our clients and, and do it well. And, and that's the end result. It, is it plans and specs? Not so much anymore. I mean, it's kind of amazing that maybe only 30 or 40% of our work now, our revenue is generated by plans and specs, which most people think it's a lot bigger number. It's not. It's a lot of ours is just pure consulting and reports and, and other things that we do. But it's about delivering that product and delivering it um, efficiently um, meeting the client's needs, those kinds of things. And there's a lot of pressure. Deadlines are, are, are ever-present. And, and when you're a project manager or working you know, on a project as a production person, you may have eight or ten projects you're trying to juggle and mm-hmm. get that done. And uh, yeah, I don't lose sight of that. I, I, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, and, well, and I would think that, that 
as chief growth officer, that will serve you really well because those are the, I mean, those are the people that are going to be most impacted probably by what you're doing. Well, I hope so. I hope so. And I, and I think, uh, you know, they have a wealth of knowledge about um, their experiences day to day and how that's changing and, and listening to them is, is key. And I think the other piece that I, that I roll into the CGO role is listening to our clients. Mm. I think that one of the tasks that I have on my plate is to really find a way, call it a listening avenue or, or something to where we can actually hear what our clients are saying and internalize that and respond to it. And not just respond to, okay, you, you told me you wanted two of these. I'm going to give you two of those. You told me you wanted two of these, but I, yeah, I'm going to give you those two, but I think you need these other things and here's what they look like. And, and so a lot of times our clients, the point is, I guess, a lot of times our clients don't know exactly what they need. And, and so we are there to be more than just production. We're there to be consultants. We're there to help them work through those problems. And that's what we are, problem solvers, extensions of them. But looking into the future, you know, what excites you most about the position of CGO? We've spent the last five years putting the company in a position to grow. And the exciting part about it is that I think we're on the cusp of, of great things for SSR, great growth potential, opportunities for our, for our people. A lot of, I see a lot of young faces around the office, which is, you know, exciting to see because they, got, they have their whole career in front of them, and we're, we're placing in front of them this, this company that is a vehicle for them to do anything they want to do. And, and that, for me, is the most exciting. I mean, I get excited about what we do for the clients because that's the end result, and, and I love a lot of our clients. I've got personal friends that, that, I, that I consider clients as well. But when I look back and say, what is it all for? It's for the people that are around us and the opportunities that it provides. And I think that continues the legacy of the founders and what they wanted to do. And, and, and um, I say that as a tribute to them because there's not a lot of companies that would have survived what we, what we have been through and still be employee-owned. We, we had plenty of opportunities to get purchased, and you know some people would have been a lot better off if we had done that, and, and, but the company as a whole and us as individuals in the company, we would not have been as well off. So I think uh, being the... You know, in charge of our own destiny is, is, is great. And I think when I talk to people about what makes SSR really different, it, it is the employee ownership. The power behind looking across the table at everybody you work with and saying, you are an owner. What would you do? You know, this is your problem. What would you do to solve it? You're the owner. What's your solution? And, and you get different solutions with that as opposed to someone that feels like they're just working a J-O-B. So for, for those of us that aren't familiar with SSR, so I know a lot of colleagues will listen to this podcast, but if you're not an SSR colleague or you're maybe interested in becoming one, what would you tell, what would you tell them about SSR? I mean, I know you just kind of talked about it a little bit. What, what else yeah. might you add? Well, I would say um, come to SSR to be the best that you want to be, right? Where we're starting is a, an ability to tell the story of people at SSR who we are, what we do, why we do it, you know, familiarize everyone with not only the leadership, but, you know, the people that are driving the business and, and why we're doing these things. What do you do for fun outside of work? Oh, boy. Um, if you ask Steve Lane, he'll tell you I do everything. And, and I, don't, I don't know. I do, I do a lot of things. I, I definitely am a gearhead. I have 
uh, a shop. I work on motorcycles and cars and I ride bikes. I have all kinds of motorcycles. I've got dirt bikes and street bikes and, and uh, dual purpose bikes that I ride. Um, so I do, I do a fair amount of that. Um, I, I do like exercise. I like running and biking and, and all those kinds of things. My kids have a farm, so I do a lot of construction work on the farm, uh, building and things that I, I enjoy working with my hands. I do a lot of stuff with my hands. And I, and I do, you know, as a hobby on the side, I do some artwork still. Well, Mike, thank you so much for the conversation today and for your time. I am so excited to hand you the ruins for SSR on air and can't wait to listen to all of the future discussions. And that's it. Thank you for joining us for our very first episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and connect with us on social media. Check out the links for everything in the show's notes. We'll see you again next month.